Hi, LT, how are you? We'll have five more minutes um, to wait and let people arrive. Thanks for coming. Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> Hi, Ash, how are you? Thanks for coming. I'll, uh, we'll wait like four to five minutes um, for and let give people some time to arrive. And, uh, and then I'll introduce you to the audience and then, and then the stage is yours. Can you hear me? Hi, Frank. How are you? Hi, Katerina. Uh, this was a, a very interesting uh, subject. Looking forward to Dr. Salamet share. Yep, me too. Um, I'm pinging people in and share it on Twitter and so on. So. Hi, Sassi Rahim. How are you? Hello. Thanks for coming. Meet Dr. Um, Ash Salamat. Um, Ash, meet uh, Frank and Sassi Rahim, our team members, moderators. It's nice to meet you, Dr. Salamat. Can you hear us? Hello. Not here. <laughs> he just wrote me. Oh, oh, maybe oh. going out and coming back in. <laughs> okay, let me write him. Okay, he will try. Hi, can you hear us now? Still no. If you maybe leave the app and come back, like close it and then open it up again. Um, oh, yeah, if he is.
Oh, he's not on university Wi-Fi. Hey, Hi, can Serena. you guys hear me? Yay! Yes. Oh, there we go. Hello. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Uh, Good that we were here earlier. Let's wait like a couple more minutes. Uh, I'm. I didn't have a chance really to share the room. That's okay. Um, uh, I'm just happy you can hear me and I can hear you. Yep. Yeah, we're saying hello. How are you? I'm good. I just want to just highlight that the fact that I can't use my phone can only mean I'm a great scientist. <laughs> um, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. We should, we should not be good in social media. <laughs> so I'm a crappy scientist. <laughs> no, I'm not good at it. <laughs> Anyways. I'm the worst. Um, yeah. I'm... <laughs> Dennis wanted to also come, so let's wait for Dennis, and um, and then we can we can stu soon start. Hi. Meet Serena. Uh, Hello. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking through the paper, and I even checked it was one that you authored. <laughs> are, you, are you referring to me? Uh, yes, um, yes. No, I had an embarrassing moment where I, I, there was a, a different paper up and I started asking the guest speaker about, you know, well, I was going to lead up to figure four. <laughs> oh, well, I had to quickly read the paper myself to remind me what my students actually do in my lab. <laughs> so uh, we might have both read the paper for the first time today. Well, that was totally my mistake last on Saturday. We had the, we had the introduction meeting uh, right before to onboard uh, a scientist on Clubhouse. And then we switched over to the room. And I still, <laughs> I thought I uh, copy pasted the next paper in, you know, my notes, but uh, apparently I clicked on the same again and posted. And then <laughs> I didn't really realize <laughs> until people, and it was like 40 minutes in, so that was a total fail. But it never happened to me before, but anyways. So how is your day going? Everything good? Uh, I'm surviving. Um, it's just, you know, when you're doing front end science, it's just never ending. So yeah, it's going very well. I mean, I'm married to my job, so every day's a, every day's a great day. <laughs> Oh, you're in a good marriage. That's good. Most people. Yeah. <laughs> it's highly platonic. It's highly platonic. So we have boundaries and codes. So it Everything works very well. Everything you said is so relatable. <laughs> so funny. It's like I'm surviving. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, let's uh, start with um, with the introduction, and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, so welcome everyone to the Science Society. Uh, we are very honored to have um, a really amazing guest speaker today who will talk about his um, really cool research in um, exogeology. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about him. So uh, <clears throat> Dr. Ashkan Salamat, he's an assistant professor of physics and um, he did his master in science and chemistry at the Imperial College UK. And then he did his uh, PhD in physical chemistry at the New University College in London, UK. 
and um, he um, is currently at the Department of Physics and Astronomy, and he is also part of the UNLV's High Pressure Science and Engineering Center, which is a multidisciplinary group that explores fundamental experimental computational and engineering problems of materials under high pressure. His research focuses on identifying precise makeup of metacyperhydrites, extremely hydrogen-rich materials, <laughs> and also techniques to synthesize them. So, um, yeah, his lab, um, you can check it out, the Salamat lab at UNLV if you want to check um, out more about this research and yeah thank you so much for being here welcome and um, if that's okay with you usually um, Dennis or Victoria today it's Dennis ask like more like a general question first and then we'll you can you can go ahead and and, and tell us about your work Cool, brilliant. Thank you for that kind introduction. Um, so I'm going to start off by saying this is work done by my graduate student, Zachary Grand, who's an absolute superstar. Um, and I'm just living, I'm taking this funder and giving this, this introduction to our group. So uh, I'm the recently appointed director of the center at UNLV. And really what we specialize in is the ability, we have this ability to make materials that mother nature herself cannot make. And what makes my subset of physics quite unique is we're able to modulate pressure and temperature in such a unique manner that we can overcome many of the barriers that Mother Nature herself faces. The big thing we're into at the moment is we're making high temperature superconductors. So we're bringing quantum materials to, to everyday devices. But the focus of this talk and the paper that's been highlighted by the group here is we have this ability in our laboratory to replicate the interior of planets. So this is quite a startling um, statement, really, but it's absolutely true. And I'm going to give you a very broad stroke of what we get up to, why we do it, and the importance of Zach's work in, in understanding the fundamental physics of water, the water cycle in the earth, and it's, it's, it's absolute necessity of understanding this as we try to uh, extrapolate life in, in, in exoplanets. And what does it mean when we look at data at the Kepler mission and stuff like this and trying to understand where water-rich planets could come? This sounds very grand, but really it's all accessible by this unique experimental technique that we've developed in our laboratory. Okay, so where shall I start my journey? Um, I'm going to start far afield and bring it back. Hopefully it's going to connect in some smooth uh, connection there so before before we begin i'd just like to start with saying salam ashkan um and Bam. we have a question here that we like to ask of do it and just before they get into the the meat and potatoes um i wanted to ask what was the the first step on your science uh, your journey to science or you know when did you know that this was what you wanted to do oh i love q a's like this um Okay, so I come from a refugee family. Uh, we're ethnically Iranian. We, I grew up in London. Um, and so I, I went to state school and so on and so on. And so 
I realized quite early on that the only way you could jump your socioeconomical class is by being good at school or by trying to achieve well at school. And so from a very young age, I was good at math and I was lucky enough to have parents who although were very educated back home in their, in their native country, um, were unemployed at the time in the UK. And so I had a lot of parental privilege at the time. And so my journey as a scientist started quite early. Um, that being said, just really quickly, you know, I hate these stories about, I knew at five years old, I was going to be a scientist and I didn't really know what I was going to do until I was like 25. I wanted to be a rock star for a long time, but I knew from a young age that education was the way to, to break out social economical classing. And so, so seriously, up to about the age of 25, I wanted to be a heavy metal rock star. Uh, I realized that a PhD pays more than working at blockbusters. And so I, I took that up. Um, but there was an underlying love of sciences and mathematics, and it was evident that I was pretty good at it from a young age. There you go. I hope that answers that question. Yes, that was a great answer. Love it. Yeah. With that, yeah. um, go ahead. And if you have any other comments, um, go for it. And if not, then we can get into the presentation. Boom. Okay. So I'm going to start really, really big and bring it back to the laboratory. Um, when we, when we look at the observable universe, most of the universe, 99.9999% of the observable universe exists as a hot plasma, a plasma is the state of matter you get to when you heat a gas to very, very high temperatures. You ionize this gas. Our star, our sun, is a giant ball of plasma. When we look across the universe, we mostly only see stars. And so most of that is just giant balls of plasma, predominantly hydrogen with some helium. Of the 0.00001% of condensed matter, a non-plasma state, most of that, in fact, is, is liquid metallic hydrogen, which is a mind-blowing realization. Jupiter and Saturn, and I showed this work when I was a postdoc at Harvard under the supervision, supervision of Isaac Silvera, Jupiter and Saturn are giant balls of liquid metal hydrogen, which is just mind-boggling. When you take something like hydrogen, which is, exists as a gas at, at atmospheric conditions, and when you cool it down, it solidifies at about 20 Kelvin. Pardon me, it does not. It solidifies at about 13.8 Kelvin. When it solidifies, it looks something like glass. It's what we call a wide gap insulator, wide band gap insulator. You take this glass-like clear material, which is solid hydrogen, and when you squeeze it to conditions beyond that you find at the interior of our Earth, hydrogen metallizes. It becomes a metallic solid. What we showed with my work a few years ago is when you heat hydrogen to conditions comparable to that you would find in, in Jupiter and Saturn, it liquefies, it goes into a liquid metallic state. And the reason Saturn and Jupiter have all these weird quadrupolar magnetic fields is because unlike the Earth, where we have a solid core and a liquid outer core, and the dynamo effect between these two drives a magnetic field in these giant gas giants, which are actually giant balls of liquid metals, there's localized turbulence, and this leads to localized magnetic dynamo effects. And as a consequence, you get very weird fields. And so I've been working on this for a very long time. It was all very exciting. Hydrogen physicists love hydrogen. Everyone works on hydrogen physics. 
And when I got my gig here at UNLV, we had a specialized center that, that was dedicated to the kind of physics that I'm interested in. And I was like, man, I really should work on water. It's fundamental to life. It's, you know, a little bit more complex than hydrogen. Um, let's go for it. And it's so, kind of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, we have a running joke and Zach does it very well. He's like water, you drink it, you swim in it, you ski on it. Um, and so we were like, okay, and actually the stories are more complicated than that. We wanted to do something called the synthetic Uranus, Uranus recipe. I can never say that word right, but that name. So this is this idea that you take water, ammonia, methane, you make these balls of mixtures, you, you, you manipulate them in the laboratory and you try and get an understanding of how these ice giants are formed. Uh, when we started our preliminary studies, we realized that most of the literature probably wasn't correct. And that's just the way science works. You know, it's dynamic. You do a lot of work and in 10, 20 years time, understandings deepen, techniques evolve. And the status quo is, no, is, is most likely not, it may be not correct, but too basic in its understanding of nature. Um, so we chose water. Now, what does the lab that I work in specifically do? And, and my super team of students and postdocs, um, we utilize diamond. So we have something, it's a handheld device called a diamond anvil cell. This has two gem quality diamonds and diamond is the hardest known material we know on earth, macroscopically anyway. We take samples and we squeeze them between two diamonds. And since diamond is so damn hard, you can squeeze stuff to incredibly high pressures. So we can exceed the pressure of the interior of our earth, which is about 3.3 million atmosphere. And because diamond, as you can tell, is optically transparent to most of the electromagnetic spectrum, we can utilize lasers or or light of different colors to directly look inside of our diamond anvil cell. So not only can we squeeze materials, but the transparency of diamond allows us to also look at these materials while under huge amounts of pressure. Um, and this is where our journey starts with Zach. We decided to squeeze water and try and do a decent job and stand on the shoulder of giants and add to our knowledge of water. Um, as we began our studies, what we found is water is a, a difficult mistress. It's, 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 it's difficult to handle. And I'm not talking, water is easy to pour, right? But there's issues with it in the laboratory. And when you squeeze it, so when I take a liquid and I apply some pressure to it, I solidify it. Now, water, she's a complex entity. When you squeeze it, it doesn't just make a uniform powder, a uniform solid. So solids can exist as single crystals. They can be multiple little crystals, nano crystals, and so on. When you compress water, it nucleates in a very specific way. There's quantum phenomena that drives the nucleation process of water. And it nucleates pretty poorly. It makes a pretty crappy crystal. Um, and what that really means inside the confinements of a diamond anvil cell is that because you have this poor crystal, then the statistics in which you collect about this crystal are pretty poor. And what we found doing these experiments was like, wow, man, these folks, these boys and girls publishing for the last 40 years, they've been collecting some pretty damn poor data. There is such poor statistics in this data that it's very hard to make quantifiable conclusions from this. Um, and so we were like, okay, cool. Everyone's done this. We've got to try something differently. What can we do differently? So in the previous life, I was a synchrotron 
scientist. A synchrotron is a large storage electron storage ring. Uh, the, the Large Hadron Collider, which I'm sure most of you heard of, is a particle accelerator where you try and achieve the fastest speeds possible to achieve the highest energies possible in the tera electron volts. A synchrotron is like a poor man's version of a of a linear accelerator. Instead of being circular, it's polygonal. And what you do is you accelerate electrons really, really fast, and then you change their direction. And through Maxwell's equations and conservation of energy, as you change their direction, they spit out light. And the light you get at a synchrotron is twice as bright than that of a star. So these synchrotrons are about the size of a football pitch, and our samples are about a tenth of the width of a human hair. So we go to one of these apparatus, and what we're allowed to do with these with these synchrotrons is we can shine really, really bright lights at these samples. And this light interaction with our sample can allow us to do certain techniques. And the technique we're interested in is X-ray crystallography. We shine light photons that have lengths that are comparable between the interatomic distance between atoms. And because the, 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 the lengths are comparable, they scatter off these bonds. And so we can construct an atomistic picture of our material. Uh, this is a very common technique discovered or developed heavily by the Bragg father and son combo who won the Nobel Prize in the early 1910s and 20s. Uh, we've known this technique for a very, very long time, but now we're able to generate such bright brilliance, so large amounts of photons that we can look at very, very small samples. And so maybe the caveat I didn't add for the diamond anvil cell is that our samples are very, very small. So we have the sample inside two diamonds. We're going to the synchrotron, this bright X-ray source, to try and build an atomistic picture of our of our of the of the of the periodicity. How the hell are these atoms arranged relative to each other? As I said, the way water nucleates is very poorly, and so we get very very poor powder averages. And so we were like, man, we've got to change this game up. We've got to try something new. I've been working on a special technique called CO2 laser heating. This allows us to excite CO2 gas which in turn emits radiation, so photons, which are about the same color as the radiation we emit from our skin. So we glow, we, we're about you know, 300 Kelvin, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 37 degrees in real units Celsius. We glow, everything glows that has some heat to it. And this CO2 light glows at the same color we glow at, and it's really easily absorbed by water. Water loves it. And so we were like, man, what if we shine very powerful lasers onto our water sample to try and disrupt the nucleation process and try and improve the quality of the crystal so that we can actually do some quantifiable measurements at this huge synchrotron thing. Sounds super easy, but no one had ever built a CO2 laser heating system at the synchrotron. And so as part of the development, we spent about a year huge chunk of money um i can't even tell you how many hours and days we spent at the synchrotron but it's in the advanced photon sources in chicago we, we moved our team there so on and so on uh dr christian charles and dr dean smith who were part of my team did an exceptional job so we built pretty much the world's first co2 laser heating system at this synchrotron man it's like a star wars movie it's like a laser on a laser on a laser like think of the most elaborate thing you could think of it's that um built this kit out and then the experiments begin. And here, what we're trying to do and what we've shown in this paper is, as you compress water, it makes this very poor crystal or a series of crystals. 
So what we do is we compress it a little bit. We heat the water with this other laser. We take it into the melt and then we very gently bring it back into the solidus and back up into the melt and back into the solids. And we just modulate temperature up and down. And as a consequence, we try and grow the crystals we need. So it's like a melt quench experiment where you like you melt this thing and then you grow a crystal and you don't quite like it so you take it back into the mountain and you just do this maybe i don't know the rep rate is like a hundred thousand times in a second or in a few seconds and as a consequence of this technique we're able to grow delicious crystals these are exquisite crystals and as a consequence of this we're able to collect very high statistical information on our sample and so we do all this and where do we get to? We get to the core of this paper. What we've, what we've shown in this paper is that water, which is already a very complex system, it has 18 different structural arrangements in the solid. And this is a consequence of bonding and stuff. And we can talk about that later if the listeners are even interested in this part of the chemistry. What we've shown is the main phase of water, which we call phase seven, there's up to phase 18 or 19 now, I think I, I've lost count. Phase seven, which has this cubic arrangement. So the atoms are arranged in such a way that the, the most primitive description of this is, is a cube-like structure. Actually, pretty quickly, is no longer cubic. It undergoes a tetragonal distortion. And it doesn't sound much to the average listener, but it is fundamental. It, it predominantly means that the main body of water on in the interior of our Earth and on most planets is not what we think it is. And what our study shows further is through very gentle compression, water undergoes a very unique transformation. It goes from a covalent system where it's predominantly hydrogen bonding and the degree of covalence is increasing. It undergoes a covalent ionic transformation. It acts like a salt. It becomes salt-like in its atomic periodicity. It, the way the electrons are shared are, are salt-like. So they're highly localized, it's an ionic form. Furthermore, there's a lot to this paper, when it goes from covalent to ionic, the bonds stiffen. It's what you call the bulk modulus, how squishy something is. And in fact, what happens is water stiffens by a factor of two and a half at pretty modest pressures. And so all of a sudden you have this, what was assumed to be this pretty persistent phase seven phase no longer existing. It becomes distorted very quickly. And a consequence of that distortion, what you get is a covalent to ionic transformation in water. And this has very deep implications for the ancient water reserves in our earth. And I can definitely build on that if you want to talk about that. We looked at, we looked at a lot of the Kepler data. So I, I hung out with some exoplanet guys and girls, and it was remarkable listening to them. They still use data from Los Alamos database from the 1970s when they look at the pressure volume relations or whatever for mass radio relations with their planets. I couldn't believe it for the 90, I was like, man, we spent millions of dollars as a community every year improving these relations. And, and the, the, the exoplanet community is stuck in the seventies. And so what we did is we were able to start analyzing some of the Kepler data and starting to observe that actually a lot of the planets that were assumed to just be terrestrial. So rock-like based on our new interpretations could actually contain a huge amount of water. So water is much stiffer than you think it is. And so when gravity tries to pull down a water-rich planet, it can't pull it as closely as you think it does. 
And so the radio is actually much larger for a water-rich planet than we envisioned previously. And so where, pre where they'd assumed that a lot of these planets were just too large to be water planets, actually could be water-rich planets. And so I don't know how long I've been ranting for, guys. I've just been circling in my room, talking. <laughs> just, just, just tell us how how long you have. I, I'm digging like, everything I could, you're saying. Bro, I could walk. I could talk for like a month. Oh, my sister's <laughs> gonna, gonna be a timer at work. Hey, uh, okay. can, let I, me let me ask a, just a quick question to nerd on the chemistry with it. So no, it was a beautiful rendition of. It sounds like okay. So you've annealed these crystals into a cubic phase that's slightly tetragonal and is ionic, um, and it's three and a half, three times stiffer. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, so in terms of the, I'm curious about the pressures of those transitions and the density that mm -hmm. that results in bond lengths uh, for the ionic bonds. I, it was a question at the end, sorry, I didn't quite hear that last bit. I, I'm curious about the, um, well, the pressures involved in the transition. Perfect, uh, perfect, perfect question. So, um, so you've really read that paper. So we go from a cubic structure to a tetragonal structure, and then the ionic phase is something different. It goes back to cubic, but we'll talk about that. And so we as a community, this high pressure community that I sit in, when we talk about pressures, we talk about pressures that are beyond any human comprehension. So we exist in the gigapascal regime. Um, one gigapascal is the equivalent to about 10,000 atmosphere. And so when I talk about water in phase seven, it occurs at about 30,000 atmosphere, which no human, no biological life that we know of so far can exist at these conditions. These are several hundred kilometers already in the interior of the earth. The transition from phase seven to what we call phase seven T, I've been calling it ice T recently, so big up ice T, um, occurs <laughs> at about five GPA, so about 50,000 atmosphere. Again, these are, for humans, these are mind boggling pressures, but for, for nature, this, these pressures are nothing. You know, the interior of our earth is just over 3 million atmospheres. The interior of Jupiter is 70 million atmospheres. The interior of our star, of our sun, is a billion atmospheres. You know, Mother Nature doesn't care about organic life on Earth. She's determined this pressure extreme for, especially for non-organic uh, systems. You know, it can go very, very, very high. And so, ice T happens. Ice seven T happens at about five GPA, and then the transformation to this ionic phase happens at about thirty GPA. So that's three hundred thousand atmosphere. Now, that sounds like a lot, but it's pretty low down in terms of the depths of the earth, we're still talking about six, 700 kilometers into the interior of the earth. And I can definitely talk a little bit further on that. But yeah, I hope that's a good enough answer to your question. Yeah, great. Um, the densities and um, bond lengths. Bam. Okay, so I mean, these questions are definitely outside my pay scale. I, I wish I had Zach as a add on. So density is a complicated thing for us to appreciate because um let me say it like this we probably get from from ambient water we probably get a twofold uh drop in uh increase in density so a good example is hydrogen when you want to go from liquid hydrogen so ambient pressure 20 kelvin to metallic hydrogen there's a tenfold in density 
but water's already quite squishy. So we've got about a twofold in density. Uh, bond lengths. Bond lengths are a complicated issue. Are we talking about the interaction, the covalent interaction between the, the degree of covalency when we induce OH bonds or when we go into the ionic phase? Um, well, yeah, I, you I, mentioned I, you were, we're in an ionic phase. I'm assuming yeah, yeah, yeah. hydrogen's positive, but uh, like the, the hydrogen-oxygen distance. These are great questions. So I, I, I generally can't answer this. Okay. Uh, I would say something between about two angstroms, probably. Uh, the problem we have, and, and I'm, and it's not my naivety that I'm saying I can't answer this. It's just, I'm, you know, it's good science. It's okay yeah, not it's to good know. Science. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's okay not to I'm know. I'm just curious about. The... <laughs> I know, so it's a great question. So, 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 and the reason I'm not sure what these the answer to this, and if anyone says they know an answer, they're a fool, right? I mean, the the reality is, these X-ray techniques that I specialize in, they work on the scat how well they scatter. So you fire a photon, and it scatters when it hits a, a, a an atom. The scattering power is proportional to z squared, so the number of electrons you have on the atom. Hydrogen only has one electron, and so these techniques that we use, the protons are invisible. We know exactly where the oxygens are, and, if, and in the paper we use a, we use a lot of theoretical, we do a lot of quantum simulations that allow us to understand the protons. But the experiments we do can't see the protons. It's it's one of the most amazing things where we as humans were so bravado about our understanding of nature but like as physicists we struggle to even understand hydrogen i mean i mean we're still fighting about fundamental properties of quarks and standard model stuff as a community um these protons are very quantum in nature we cannot measure them and so we just i wouldn't bet my house on it but i'm going to say about like i don't know 1.6 or 2 angstrom someone could call me out on that later All right, who has other questions? Because I have so many. Okay, I see no mic flashes, so I'll start with mine. First, I want to say, wow, that's really cool. Um, I, everything that you said was, was enlightening. Uh, having read the paper and having worked in hydrology on Earth, I didn't know that there were 18 phases of water. Bam, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's really cool. Um, and being a regular in space medicine rooms and sort of, you know, exoscience rooms, it was just really interesting to look at figure five. I'm looking at the preprint. I wasn't able to get to the, the full version. But figure five on the, on the preprint I was wondering where Earth lies on these curves. Uh, you got to tell me which one was the figure five in your version. Is that the? Uh, well, it's got it's got Trappist on the bottom and then Kepler. Oh, fantastic! Oh, fantastic! Yeah. yeah. Um, so where does Earth sit on those? It sits pretty low down. So these are predominantly super Earths where they have. Um, so one of the limitations of Kepler is that the way we what Kepler did is it, it points to a region of space and it takes a series of photographs and often how we've identified the, 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 the emergence of exoplanets as a whole is we see a dark blip or a shadow crossing this star. So we have a very, very bright object and because of the resolution of the, of the telescope, we can see a very, very small object moving across the star. Yeah, the transit. Exactly. Uh... Bam. You know this probably better. Yes, exactly. And so 
the limitation of that is we can only see pretty large objects. We often see Earth, uh, terrestrial planets that are about five times larger than Earth. Um, and so often when we talk about exoplanets, we talk about super Earths, things that are about five to 10 times the size of Earth. Uh, and so because they're larger and the gravitational pull is greater, you know, what's, what the, I think I realized this when I was like 20 something, it was one of those like light bulb moments where, you know, you squeeze stuff and they go, they have different structures. And I was like, man, these super earths, it can't have been that long ago because I don't think we were talking about super, but super earths have completely different geology to the earth. The phases in which the minerals exist in are different to that of the earth because it's a lot, a lot larger. The scales are, are completely different. Bam, yeah. Exactly. And so, so earth doesn't, earth doesn't quite sit on that because what we can only really observe is, is planets that are much, much larger because we don't have the exact, we don't have the necessary resolution to, to see such smaller planets. Um, and so it's a little bit off that, but for the planets that we do report, the Trappist ones and all the ones that we've, I highlighted, you know, when you think about exoplanets and super earths, possibly everything could be different, at least within the, within the interior, because the pressures are much, much higher. The temperatures are much, much higher. You know, the minerals that we classify Bridgmanai, MGSO3, you know, the, the various systems in the Davomite, these things don't, won't actually exist in abundance in these super earths. Uh, yeah. So I, I didn't quite answer your question. I kind of deviated, but it's, it's the limitation of Kepler as a, as a telescope that we can only observe objects much larger than that of earth. And so it doesn't quite sit on that graph, our, our mother home. That that's a that's a that's a great answer. I, I I would compel you perhaps to put Earth just as a reference point for all the space nerds like myself, even the, even if it lies really or maybe I don't know maybe uh, like a bro, you can't, like you Earth, can't Earth would to, be over here. <laughs> bro, you can't come to my interview and and and, uh, and critique my post my already published graph. But I, I, we, we talked, we talked, <laughs> for the future for the future. <laughs> We talk about it a lot. So, I mean, you're spot on. I mean, something we try to always, um, to, to be honest with you, it's fascinating publishing something like this that's so fundamental in physics and it's captivated the, or crystallized the imagination of, of so many people outside of condensed matter. Uh, but it's a, it's a wonderful suggestion. I agree. I'm glad. Okay, glad I'm, I'm, just... well, was, uh, I'm, I'm happy it was well taken. I didn't mean to, to yeah, say yeah. anything I, I, otherwise. I'll take it. I'll take that. I'll take, it's a good suggestion. Okay, no, no, I mean, so part of the density question was, okay, factor of two. Now, when it comes to these, the planet hunters, yes. that's, that's thrown their, their calibrations off quite a bit, right? You're saying? Perfect question. That's a really good question. And so, exactly, what we've shown is water is much more, stiffens much, much uh, harder than one imagine, and so you know these. Well, you know the planet hunters are observing planets, and they can give us the uh, uh, certain relationships that we can plot, right? Then once we have this body of planets that we've observed, and we know what their their, their size is, and the and the and, and how they're moving around the 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 the, the, the orbiting planets, orbiting around the, the main star, and so on, then it's up to other members of the community to try and extrapolate data collected in laboratories and in theoretical studies and try and give us a fighting chance to understand 
what these materials, what these planets are made of. Um, most recently, the techniques we've developed allow us to see the atmospheric composition of exoplanets and super Earth-like species. So we can do spectroscopy, which is mind-blowing, but light from a star can be absorbed through the atmosphere of a planet and hits our eye as the observer here on Earth. But that's very limited. And so exactly what you're saying, we, we have to be able to do very precise measurements at very, very extreme conditions in the laboratory to allow our astronomer colleagues to have a fighting chance of, of determining what these bodies could be made up of. Uh, and in our study of water, it's, it's really forced them to recalibrate um, where water-rich planets would sit. So yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's, 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 it's probably the most exciting part of this work, I would say, outside the absolute fundamental quantumness of water, which as physicists were obviously very excited about. Okay, so so um, forgive me if this is in the preprint. I haven't been able to go through it all. But uh, um, what uh, si since um, you know there's there's this potential uh, quantum unusualness uh, of the protons in this. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens if you substitute with deuterons? Uh, because in particular. Um, the 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 um a deuteron does not obey fermi statistics it obeys bose statistics that is a killer question i love that question um this is our this is our follow-up study and so perfect so there's an isotopic so so hydrogen has three primary isotopes uh protons deuterons and, and tritions so you know in the case when you change the, the uh, from protons to, to deuterons, the quantum the quantumness drops. You add a the, the deuteron is a heavier entity, and when you when you substitute protons, so the lighter you are, the more quantum you are. Nothing is more quantum than hydrogen. When you so the question was, what happens when you take H two O and make it D two O? And so the quantumness of the system changes. It becomes less quantum, like phase boundaries move. Um, we see the same effects. We really do see this, this tetragonal distortion, this I7T phenomena. We also see the onset of um, ionic behavior, but we see it at a much, much higher pressure. And that's because what's driving this covalent ionic transformation is the quantumness of the proton it has a huge degree of anharmonicity so what does that mean so you could think of a morse potential so an energy well this, this, this proton's hanging out in uh, in the most ideal sense the well is very uniform it has a gaussian like distribution so it's very even like it looks like a bell shape inverted but hydrogen as annoying as it is it's, it's that that bell shape is immediately destroyed it's highly anharmonic it's highly skewed on one side of its energy profile. And this anharmonicity, this quantumness in, in, in hydrogen drives this covalent ionic transformation of water at a much, much lower pressure than when you see it in the deuterated version. And, and coming back to the excellent question of what is the bond length, and I couldn't answer it because I don't know anything about science. And that's because, you know, my argument was that X-rays don't see hydrogen. So the technique that sees hydrogens well, specifically deuterons, is something called neutron diffraction. So instead of firing light photons, you fire neutrons. 
these interact, interact with the nuclei of, of the materials and they have different criteria for scattering. The community that studies water only ever looks at D2O because hydrogen has a, a negative absorption length and yada, 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 quantum, quantum, quantum. When you do neutron experiments, you can't see protons, you can only see deuterons. And so just orthogonal, there's been many Nobel Prize, prizes in, in, in medicine and stuff where people have crystallized deuterated versions of proteins and stuff and on neutron diffraction to look at where the protons, the deuterons sit and solve these amazing complex structures. And this is the fight we have within our community. Us, us hardcore physicists who appreciate the quantumness of, of all things are saying that H2O is very, very different from D2O. And the reason there's a big disagreement between our study and the study of, of the folks who look at water using a neutron defect, neutron techniques, is because they're looking at D2O. They do not see this transformation from covalent to ionic until about 100 GPA. And they're very, um, uh, what's the word? Um, very willing to remind us about their observations. Um, so it's a, it's a fun, fantastic question. So you take hydrogen, you take its various isotopes and you change them. And as you go to the heavier isotope, the quantumness of water drops. And it's clearly seen in our work. And clearly when you compare it to other people who have studied it, the deuterated system. Excellent, excellent question. Really excellent question. Fascinating answer, so thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. So, yeah, absolutely fascinating answer. Um, so have you, I mean, so that's now in this quantum, well, I'm gonna, let, let me put that one aside. Um, actually, no, so the, the, so the quantum, nature of these protons in this lattice at extremely high pressures uh, for us, but, you know, more or less mild pressures on a planetary scale. Um, yes, yes. Have you been able to look into some of the other material properties of that? If these, you know, how, uh, you know, what, what kind of quantum behavior in those, this proton lattice exists um... amazing amazing questions yeah yeah so these are just smashing questions um yes so water is a beast it's so bizarre so if you take so let, let's check this out so we compress we're, we're, we're at room temperature we compress well, we put some liquid water in this diamond anvil cell we compress it at, at 2 gpa uh 20,000 atmosphere it solidifies into phase six. It, a little bit later on, it solidifies into phase seven. We've shown it tetragonally distorts by 30 GPA, 300,000 atmosphere. It becomes ionic in phase 10. Now, if you take that ionic phase, which I'm going to label as phase 10, and you heat it, it becomes super ionic. And what that means is that it's quite a remarkable uh, observation, and it's 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 very unique to these light element light elemental molecular species like water, methane, and ammonia. The quantumness of the proton means that the oxygen lattice stays rigid, and the protons completely detach themselves and become like a soup. So you get a proton soup grouping around the oxygen lattice, and what we think is happening in in the ice giants. These things that we call ice giants are actually giant balls of super ionic water and methane and ammonia. 
And so the, the quantumness of, of, of the protons drives water to do these really, really crazy things. The, the big thing that Zach and I are working on, um, and he's going to nail it before he graduates in his PhD, or he's never going to graduate, obviously don't tell him that, is <laughs> there's a prediction that at 4 million atmosphere and 5,000 Kelvin, water becomes a solid liquid metal. So, sorry, that didn't make any sense. Pardon me. Water becomes a liquid metallic system. Pardon me, wrong, wrong meeting. And so we're looking for this liquid metal phase of water, which potentially could explain to us what's happening in the quadrupolar magnetic fields of, of Neptune and so on. And so there's weird and wonderful uh, behavior within the water construct, and it's driven by the quantumness of water. It's crazy because you assume that at high temperatures or at high pressures, the quantum nature of, of, of nature, the quantum nature of physics dies, right? Often as physicists, we've worked at incredibly low temperatures to observe quantum phenomena. There's been many Nobel Prizes in, in, in cooling techniques and both Einstein condensation and stuff where we're in a nano Kelvin regime. But actually, as we start to explore more extreme conditions, we find that Mother Nature is actually very forgiving and she, she prefers quantumness to a lot of things at extreme conditions. Uh, wow. So, so di diamond anvils don't don't hold up to, to that uh, temperature, do they? They do. They do. They absolutely. In our lab, we can go to ten thousand Kelvin. Wow. So, yeah, for uh, that in your pipe, that is, is crazy. A, that is a, some hot stuff, huh? I know. Wow. If anyone's uh, traveling, what's the power draw on that? Geez, and like how long? What's the duration of the of that? Great question. That's a great question. So, um. Again, it depends about the photon-electron interaction in the material at these extreme densities, but um, and depending on what kind of. So we have a two hundred watt terbium laser, uh, um, terbium laser rod system. So this is a doped silica fiber. It's a fiber optic. It looks like a lightsaber. This thing fits in your hands. It can blow the side of a tank. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Um, yeah, talk about sounding like a badass. I basically use a lightsaber to do experiments. <laughs> it, it, it sounds very cool at the bar, but once people come to your lab, they're very disappointed because they're like, "Oh, cool, it's just a laser." So that no, it's just it's a laser. Laser technology has changed so much. So, with a couple of hundred watts of CW light, if you set the environment and pick the correct sample, you can exceed five thousand. You can hit to about one eV in temperature. Now there's other complications. How do you measure temperature that's so hot? And we've specialized in optical pyrometry and dealing with emissivity problems. So getting to extreme temperature. What is an EV? Hold on. <laughs> it's, the, it's the energy scale for temperature. You know how you can relate. Everything's related in physics, right? You can go from energy to temperature to yes, frequency please. to so on. <laughs> yes. So one EV of energy is about, I think 11,000 Kelvin something on that ballpark um, yeah, so, so 300 kelvin is about uh, 24 milli electron volts there we go bam there we go oh um, ev stands for electron volt okay yeah wow. oh pardon me pardon me pardon me i was busting out acronyms like everyone knew what's going on uh the plasma physicist so you know the plasma physicists often talk about temperature in terms of energy because to ionize something you have to like you know, the hydrogen bond is 13.4 EV electron volts. And so to fully ionize it, 
you have to put 13.4 EVs worth of energy in. And the equivalent of that is probably like 150,000 Kelvin or something to, to, to truly ionize that system. And so my bad. For, um, for, for reference, what is the sun in these measurements? Oh, that's a great question. So, so the sun is a complex entity. Its surface is only about 5,000 Kelvin only. Uh, and we can, we can get to that temperature quite readily. It has its corona, which is very complicated. We won't talk about that. The interior of, of, of our sun, uh, it's about, I want to say a billion degrees. Someone can look that up. Um, well, so, yeah. so if we just approximate the, the, the sun's surface is 6,000 Kelvin, that's 20 times 300 Kelvin. So that's 480 milli electron volts. Bam. There we go. There we go. About half an EV. So mind blowing. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, actually, I had a follow-up question when you were talking about water turning to metal. I think that's what you said. And I was mm -hmm. just trying to imagine water as a metal. I don't know. For some reason, I just thought about mercury or something. I don't know. But what? How does the? how do the properties of the water change in that respect? Like, does it turn out to be something like mercury? Like, could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, like what's the definition of metal at that temperature and how, how to wow. exactly this is, a tough, this is a tough crowd, huh? Oh, no. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'll, I'll so, raise it one one further. Um, if me. if you, oh, you wow. have the, um, the the protons, you know, behaving, uh, you know, as, as a distributed uh, quantum, uh, you know, one one orbital that's that's highly populated, mm -hmm. um, then uh, uh, perhaps you can have a high temperature proton superconductor. Bam! Wow, you guys, you guys, man, I'm walked into a trap here. Okay, so I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm but you're happy. It. You're happy you're here. You like these yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 okay, so these are phenomenal questions, all of them. So I'm going to bring it back to hydrogen to make it. I'm going to simplify this example through hydrogen, <laughs> and then we'll talk about water. So I take hydrogen as a gas at ambient conditions that we breathe. I cool it down at 20 degrees Kelvin. It becomes a liquid at 13.8 degrees Kelvin. It becomes a solid. It's a wide gap insulator, about 14 electron volts. It's huge. It looks like glass. It's totally transparent. It's covalent in nature. So the, the hydrogen molecules, actually, there's van der Waal interactions, but the hydrogen molecules see each other and it's all covalent-like. As I squeeze on it, I increase the degree of covalency, and I keep increasing the degree of covalency that at 5 million atmosphere, and we showed this when I was working at uh, Isaac Silvera's group, it becomes a metal. And the metal can be assumed to just be a perfect covalent system. You know, at high school, they're like, uh, see your free electrons. Yeah, sure, whatever. It's way more complicated than that. But the sharing, optimum sharing, is just a perfect covalent system. And so in the case of hydrogen, you, you squeeze these electrons closer and closer and closer together, and eventually they just all share evenly, and you make a metallic system. Now, hydrogen is predicted, and we will soon show, to for it to be a room temperature superconductor. Superconductivity is a quantum phenomena where its principal property is that it shows zero resistance to electrical flow. When you pass electricity through a wire, it heats up, it dissipates some energy. A superconductor loses no energy, but often these only occur at very, very low temperatures. Hydrogen is shown to be a room temperature superconductor. In fact, in, in 2020, my group and Ranga Diaz's group at Rochester, we published a paper in the front cover of Nature where we showed the first ever room temperature superconductor, although at very, very high pressures. 
So I've got this hydrogen, it's a superconductor, it's at room temperature, but it's at 5 million atmosphere. In the case of water, we're not quite sure what its properties will be. We're not even sure if water can exist as water itself at these extreme conditions. What if everything breaks down into its constituent elements? Like we, we just don't quite understand what happens in the interior of these planets. You know, you know, can water, can, can methane, ammonia, can these, can these molecular species actually exist as these molecular species? Does everything then just, is, is the real energetic minima in the global landscape, energy landscape, just the elements again? So we're not quite sure. Could it be a high temperature superconductor? Yeah, I, I don't know, maybe, I mean, I don't know. What does it look like? That's a great question. It looks but, like a metal. It looks like a shiny metal. We we showed that with hydrogen. Um, so so this is where I was going with the the question about Bose statistics because uh, if if you could get this state with uh, with deuterons, um, mm -hmm. they can operate. They can uh, uh, exist in the same energy state. Yes. Okay. That, that's true. So. Then we're going really deep into the quantumness of all this. Uh, the problem with with with, with a deuteronic system is that often you have to go to higher pressure to see the phenomena. And so, it's a very good question. It's something we will eventually achieve as a as as a community, as a, as, as as humans. But we have to go to more extreme conditions, and we can't quite get to those extreme conditions. But yeah, it's a phenomenal thing. We've been thinking about it for probably like fifty years as a community. I mean, it's a spot-on question. I, I just want to—I just want to finish my little rant by: what is a metal? It's an incredibly complicated question. We spent—I spent three years as a postdoc smashing my head against the wall trying to understand this. So Neville Mott, where Mott insulators come from, his definition of a metal was: for a material to have a finite resistance below a certain threshold value. At the limit of t equals zero. So what that really means is, as you cool things down at the limit to the limit of t equals zero, the resistance should reach a finite value, which is below a certain threshold, whatever that threshold is. I'm going to blow everyone's mind right now. Silicon is a semiconductor. It is a non-metallic system. It has a band gap, whatever for you guys that might mean. When you melt silicon, it becomes a metallic liquid. So you cannot use Sir Neville Mott's uh, analogy anymore. His analogy was at the limit of t equals zero, there should be a finite resistance at a below a certain threshold value. Well, if you cool liquid metallic silicon down, it goes back into an insulative state. <laughs> and so what is a metal? Like It's a very complicated question. You can think about things like plasma frequencies, so the plasmonic quantized motion of electrons and surfaces, you could think about finite resistivity, reflectivity. I mean, it's, these are these are these become philosophical questions at these at these limits because we just don't understand enough about nature. Like, what even is a metal, man? Whoa. Yeah, dude. <laughs> so I have spent weeks thinking, what is a metal? It's 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 it's, and you know, what is a metal? We just decided that something shiny malleable, reasonably hard is a metal. These things are just semantics that we've imposed upon nature. They don't really mean much when you get into very, very complicated regimes of matter. Yeah, I just want to say, Dr. Well, so, yeah, that's why, 
Dr. Uh, Salamat, uh, you know, we're asking you all these wonderful questions because we're really enjoying this presentation. It's really interesting and we're all fascinated. So we want to know more. That's what this is about. So, you know, <laughs> you're doing a great job. Just wanted to say that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Definitely. Um, so, because now, now it, you know, we get to think of planets in terms of the potential of these underground lakes of superconducting metal. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, you know, Jupiter, it's a giant ball of liquid metallic hydrogen. You just don't know what's good. The properties are really are not understood. Um, yeah, when you look up at the night sky, it's all just so remarkable and intriguing. There's a, a lifetime, there's many lifetimes of research to be done. Did you say there was a particular quadrupolar signature to the material? And does that have any way, way to help the planet hunters or, you know, even geologists here on Earth, um, you know, probe for the larger, um, you know, deposits or not deposits, but uh, collections of this state of water? That's another phenomenal question. So if we're able to do magnetization measurements, but often, so absolutely, if you have quadrupolar or more complex magnetic environments, it's often surface, near, near surface-like dynamics, which means you have a liquidus, which most likely means you have a metallic or super ionic liquidus in the system, as I've tried to hopefully convince all of you, uh, the limitation there is magnetization measurements often require flyover. So Voyager 1 and 2 were our best attempts at getting magnetization data. Um, so at the moment, we're limited to spectroscopic and visualization data. James Webb microscope's got, telescope's gone out for me. Uh, we're able to collect emission spectroscopy from exoplanets with some very clever techniques. And so, yes, this will be a a brilliant way to 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 get a more in-depth uh, glimpse of what's occurring in the in the in the skin-like depths of, of these planets. But again, we're we're limited to flyovers at the moment for magnetization measurements. Any any candidates from the so NASA recently um, announced that they had cataloged five thousand exoplanets. Any candidates on these for uh, for Ice Ten? Uh, I'm already stepping way out of my field of expertise. I, I just, when you, you guys tend to invite a real exoplanet uh, specialist. I would say, let me let me make a remark on this. Even though our work is probably, I would say, some of the most precise measurements done on water, um, what I'm hoping our study has shown is that we just need more and more intricate detailed measurements on such on such systems. Um, there's still so much for us to understand. We've extrapolated quite heavily, so, so have others. Um, I think the best we can bring to this table is that water is still way more complex than we ever imagined. And we just need more and more measurements. We need more improvements in our understanding. Uh, ideally, we don't want to be extrapolating to these to the, to the interiors, to the, to the conditions we expect for super Earths. We want to be able to do direct measurements in the lab that then allow us to give us much more precise pinpoint um, correlations to what we're observing. I'm going to leave my mediocre answer at that. 
Follow, follow up question. And um, I think the answer is probably no. But is there a potential for ice 10 on Earth or anywhere in our solar system? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. And so yes. So what's remarkable about this observation into ice 10 is that it goes from covalent to ionic. And when we where we see this boundary at 30 GPA, the equivalent is about 700 kilometers into the, into the depths of the earth. What occurs at that depth is that bridgmanite. So bridgmanite is the high pressure or the high density form of magnesium silicate. And it's the most common mineral in the, in the, in the composition of our earth. It was actually named by my colleague, Oliver Shauna here at UNLV, uh, Arthur uh, Percy Bridgman, who won the Nobel prize in physics and was actually a professor at Harvard where my mentor actually uh, replaced him it was a great 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 family tree there but bridgmanite draws water to itself at about the same pressures that we see water transform into the ionic phase 10 it bridgmanite releases water and what we're arguing to the geology community is that this dehydration of bridgmanite this 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 release of water suddenly is because water itself is going into a transformation from covalent to ionic. As it breaks the degree of covalency, its interaction with bridgmanite is, 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 is finished. And the separation of, of rock and water is because water is undergoing this covalent to ionic transformation. And so because we think that's happening, there must be ancient reservoirs of phase 10 water in the deep earth. This water has gone somewhere. It could have been spouted out through volcanic and, and, and seismology phenomena, but not all of it. And so there must be ancient reservoirs of, of, of water in the deep earth as a consequence of this covalent to ionic transformation from phase 70 to phase 10. And so there must be some of this in the earth. And, and in the case of the, the ice giants, there's, there's, I'm sure we're sure there is, it probably gets very, very complicated, very, very quickly, depending on where you sit on the, on the relative depth of the planet. And so, yeah. The simple answer was yes. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I've once heard kind of one of these dogmatic like statements like there is 60 times the volume of the ocean in reservoirs within the core of the earth. And this seems to suggest that would you would you put perhaps a more precise bound on what that number might be in terms of available uh, volume? Absolutely not. I'm not shooting. I'm not. I'm not. I have no idea. Um, I mean. I think it's unrealistic uh, to put such bounds. Again, I think it's, it's a foolish individual or, or a very brave individual to, to, to say, I think X, Y, or, you know, X, Y, and Z. The likelihood is based on the measurements we've done and, and the measurements by the community, that there must be uh, reservoirs of, of water in the earth. Um, how much? It's a very complicated process that the earth is, you know, over four and a half billion years old. We just don't, personally, I don't think we understand enough about this rock that we sit on to make such bold claims. Um, but it, yeah, it I thought must it was, be. Yeah, I thought it was a very odd number to have, <laughs> very specific, not like 50, not, not 100. So uh, I, I was know. curious if there was any sort I, of estimate behind that. But uh, um, I never got to ask the follow-up question for the person who gave the lecture. Um, there was think, another study yeah. of research that kind of talked about how the definition of metal resembles more the definition of acid. 
in certain uh, situations and how their definition of metals had to change. Uh, and I forget what property it was. Uh, I guess in summary, in what way did your understanding of what a metal is change? Because I know you gave the, the the definition, but I guess I didn't catch what was the thing that significantly I, I, changed. I, 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 I definitely did. I, I didn't give a definition. I, I, I gave a bunch of definitions for others. So uh, what is a metal? Um, so, you know, classically, you ask me what is the definition? You know, you would say it's shiny, right? It has to be a shiny metal, something that you shine light on and it looks silvery. Well, actually, xenon becomes a metal under huge amounts of pressure and it's still transparent to the human eye. But but it's a metal. It has very high conductivity beyond a certain threshold. So There's just no I, refractivity to it? No, it's something called the plasma frequency. So I'm going to explain this to the general. If I get this right, everyone does, owes me a beer. So um, electrons that sit on the surface of material, their motion is quantized. They move in a very specific manner. The quantization of this motion gives rise to a quasi-particle state called the plasmon. The plasmon, so basically these electrons are moving. If you're, a, if you're, if you're and they have a frequency to them, right? If you're a ray of light, you have a frequency to you. If you if this ray of light wants to make it through this material, the frequency of the light has to be faster than the frequency at which these electrons are breathing. And so, for example, and perhaps the the frequency that I mean, I guess we're not only talking about just the human eye without any augmentation in terms of yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're gonna, yeah, yeah, forget the human eye for a second. So, for example, X rays. The reason X rays make it through most materials in a very, very simple understanding is that the, they're very, very high energy. And so they have very, very high frequency. And so this frequency is much, much higher than the frequency at which the electrons on the surface of this material are moving. And so it can make it through. If the frequency is lower than the frequency of these electrons that's moving, it bounces off the electrons. And so that's why most, nearly all materials are transparent to X-rays. Now, with metals, the plasma frequency is somewhere in the deep UV. And so once you go into the UV regime of light, metals are opaque. They are no longer transparent. A non-metallic system like glass is still even visible in the visible light. And so we as physicists, when we talk about metals and non-metals, we, we're actually talking about it on a very deep level of plasma frequencies and and the, the quantized motion of electrons on surfaces. That's that's why we've been we've been pigeonholed into this very obscure understanding of metals because everything else doesn't quite work. Uh, so we're sitting in this very niche area of trying to talk about plasma frequencies and and what does that mean and what is the threshold and stuff. And so when I think about metals, I think about it in a very weird weird way. I don't really think about it in terms of like is it shiny. I don't even think about conductivity really because so on and so on so yeah i hope that answer was helpful okay thank you yeah i appreciate it yeah it's just like some rants yeah yeah cool so yeah it's very complicated it's very very complex and the deeper you look the more if you're not if you're not amazed every day you're you're, you're doing it wrong really so, so i haven't thought of of metal surfaces in terms of uh just their their reflectivity in terms yeah. of surface plasmons is, is is this kind of like the the magic situation where where you have the 
uh, electric field and the magnetic field of, of uh, uh, a, a photon um, kind of getting a, a surface plasmon to zip around in just the way that it uh, uh, shakes it back off uh, uh, at the Bam. opposite angle to the normal. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Pretty. Pretty. Um, simply put, yes. It, it's this phenomenon. It says the transways, transways, transways form of the of the photon. You have the magnetic and electric component. It's the electric component that interacts with the electric field of the electrons on the surface. And so, we often think about it like this because, like the example I gave was xenon. Xenon is a metal under a million atmosphere of pressure, but it's transparent because its plasma frequency sits in the near IR, where metals it sits in the UV, and so they're opaque, anything above the UV. Xenon's plasma frequency sits in the near IR, and so it's only opaque above the near IR, so above one micron uh, um, wavelength, and so it looks transparent to the eye, even though it's a metal. Given that humans have three or four, or four cones, now you have me wondering how a shrimp looks at it, like with 12 cones. <laughs> I, I got a high one in my lab because I bet, I bet those suckers could spot a metal from a mile away. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah mental so has a color vision of 12 degrees. Wow. Yeah. They also have the ability to, um, I guess, uh, see polarized light, circularly polarized light, which is, which is pretty cool. Was there any uh, circular polarization component to this? Because I know you just mentioned kind of the, the different waves, but uh, is there any component of that or perhaps that's future research? It's a great question. And so uh, these diamond anvil cells, when we compress materials, uh, the, the strain tensor along the diamond is non-uniform. And as a consequence of that, it disrupts all polarization of light. And so we get scrambled lights out of our measurements. And so we're not able to do uh, polarized measurements coming out of a diamond anvil cell. And we've been thinking about this, this. I think there's tricks in atomic molecular and optics physics that we've been thinking about. But this is a, a, a limitation when it comes to optical techniques in the diamond anvil cell is that we can't do polarized measurements. Visible polarized measurements, now obviously other other photons of higher energy where you can polarize those photons. I have a question on it. Yeah, thanks for, you know, uh, Dr. Sonoma is fascinating that uh, how you explain science well. The, uh, so about the end itself, can you, uh, I'm curious about the, the size of, uh, of your sample that uh, in preparation, how, how, what is, uh, how, yeah. how many, uh, yeah, what is the amount? Fantastic yes. question. Absolutely fantastic question. So this is bringing it right back to the fundamentals of the technique. And so this, the diamond anvil cell has two pairs of diamonds, gem quality. And unlike your diamond ring, if you're blinging it out, uh, the diamond ring often has the table, the back end of the diamond showing. If you take that diamond out and turn it up and on its bottom end, looking up, it looks a bit like a pyramid. And what we do is we use the very tip of that diamond to do our measurements. Now, very simply put, pressure is force over area. And what we do is we take a modest force and we divide it by a tiny area. And as a consequence, we can get to huge, huge pressures. So there's an inverse relationship between area and pressure. To go to 5 million atmosphere for hydrogen, your sample sizes are in the order of a few microns. So 
somewhere between a hundred, a tenth to a hundredth of the width of a human hair. For these water measurements, the pressures are much more modest. We're only going to like a million atmospheres, for example. Uh, sample sizes are about, I'm trying to think back on a good day, 100 microns in, in diameter, a couple of microns thick. But they're, they're pretty snugly, they're pretty small. Um, what about the time element of the experiment? Oh, brilliant question. So a diamond anvil cell environment allows you to have a static setup, which means you can indefinitely hold a material there for the lifetime of the material, the lifetime of diamond, which is about a billion years. Um, these are very, these are static measurements. And so the timescales are very, very long. The, the, the counterpart to our community are the shock community. So we do the geological timescales. Yeah. yeah, 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 of course, of course. That's a great, that's a great. The, uh, yeah. So for, for the uh, water, for the uh, H2O is, so under such extreme conditions that you're applying the, what the role of the oxygen uh, uh, atoms are uh, uh, playing? I mean, is it more important than the hydrogen or is it, uh, oh, because no, it, it's metallized as well, right? Uh, well done, exceptional question. So oxygen on its own, at just at 96 GPA, so just below a million atmosphere, it becomes a metal. So oxygen, you can make metallic oxygen. Um, it's going to be the future rocket fuel along with metallic hydrogen. I'm sure, you know, you're going to have uh, these remarkable high energy fuels. The, the role of oxygen, well, if you take, oxygen has to be there for it. Oxygen and hydrogen have to be there for it to be water. If you change any of the constituent elements, it's no longer water. So I can swap oxygen for nitrogen and make ammonia, NH3. I can take oxygen and swap it out for carbon. I can make methane, CH4. So compositionally, the material is defined by its constituent elements. So it's not like you can change them in and out. If you do, you just make another material. Uh, its role is predominantly clastic-like. It provides a very rigid body to which the protons can do all their weird quantumness. It's still quite light in its atomic uh, mass, so it can participate uh, within the bon bon Oppenheimer approximation. Um, but yeah, I mean, to be honest, all we ever measure is the damn oxygen. We're, 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 <laughs> I wish we had a better portal into understanding what our quantum friend protons are doing. Have have you been able to look at um, effective, you know, small impurities? Can you throw some lithium in there or whatever? Uh, oh, fantastic question! Absolutely fantastic question. Uh, we have not. We we are purists, so we are hardcore physicists trying to understand quantum nature and trying to uh, overplay our hand by understanding the universe at the same time. Uh, our geology colleagues. Uh, have done a phenomenal amount of work um, from a geological standpoint, especially understanding the, the Jovian moons, they've been looking at a lot of salty water. So we know a lot of the Jovian moons uh, that, that, that do have water are highly um, saline, I don't know what salinity content. Um, for ourselves, we try to look at various mixtures the problem is 
mine is not a problem. Uh, I'm fascinated by metrology. So metrology is the art of the measurement. You know, I have taught my group and my, my center to, we want to be the world's, one of the leading groups in the world in, in doing the most precise measurements. Um, and to do that often, you have to have very simple systems to look at. So it's just water. Like we're still, I'm still confused every day when I wake up and I think about water. The thought of adding a contaminate in there, I, I don't think my OCD levels will allow it. Um, but <laughs> these are perfect questions for others to go away and do. You know, what happens when you add metals in there? What happens? When, I mean, a great question is, for example, do any of the ice giants actually have rocky interiors? Do do, do silicate rocks, are they, are they insoluble or soluble in a super ionic liquid? So if you make a super ionic water uh, state, does the silicate just melt or dissolve into it? And if it does, then none of these giants in our, in our solar system actually have rocky interiors. Uh, so How are, hard would are, it be to perform that experiment? In my lab, like I always say one day and like four years later, we still haven't done it. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> we specialize in my group. We specialize in these techniques. We have a lot of questions to flurry through and, and get through, but but nothing's easy, right? If you want to do something right, the beautiful thing about science and understanding mother nature is no matter how simple the question you have, once you start to dig, you realize the trench you're digging is endless. Oh, it's the worst. I'm, what makes you a successful scientist is knowing when to stop digging. That's really all it is. <laughs> you either dig, there you will always be more you... questions. Well, there's always oh, more sure. work for grad colleague? students, right? <laughs> it's turtles all the way down, yeah. as my quantum prof said. So sometimes I'm, I'm you want to have to keep I'm worried some of the, my grad students are on this line, so I'm not going to make too many grad student jokes. But yes, you're right. <laughs> yes, to be a, a scientist and uh, to be sane at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and so, by the way, uh, mad uh, scientist. Uh, you, I, I, I got very, yeah, exactly. I got very, uh, uh, I learned a lot. Thank you so much. The, so, you mentioned something. So, I'm just trying to draw the picture. I'm getting a take, a, take home, like a, uh, message that the so the 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 water the H two O when when it becomes metal is mostly you you said that uh, uh is the quantum behavior of the uh, proton the hydrogen uh, uh and uh, it's it's uh, electron that's being shared of converted from covalent to to the metal uh, I mean uh, sh shared is 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 that the the, the right uh, Amazing question. Amazing, amazing question. And so I'm going to bring it back to just hydrogen again, just to just blow everyone's mind. So metallic hydrogen, right? Hydrogen, each atom of hydrogen only has one electron. This electron, so I, I, I form a periodic lattice with my hydrogen neighbors, my brothers and sisters left and right of me, up and down of me. And we all hold hands. And we form this rigid network. And every time I hold a hand with my nearest neighbor, I have to give an electron as a 1s bond, and they have to give another electron. So we have to fulfill two electrons for this Hund's law. Then where, where is my electron now in participating in the conduction band in being a metal? If I'm only a one electron system, 
how can I form a bond and also contribute electrons to the conduction band to behave like metals and be free carriers and do all the things a metal is expected to do? And so this was one of these, you know, deep philosophical questions we kept asking ourselves uh, as postdocs. I mean, these, we had the best lunches. We just had the best, like, these are, no one would eat. <laughs> Everyone would sit there in silence and just think about these. So what happens in hydrogen? You have to form a bond and still contribute to the conduction band. And so we think the most rational answer, the, the, that's not even rational. The easy way out of answering this is that in the case of hydrogen, the electron uh, participates in both functions. It's quantum. It can spend some of its time in bonding and some of its time in the conduction band being a free uh, carrier. How this, 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 this tau, this, this temporal contribution occurs, I'm just making it up. I have no idea, but there must be, there must be some, I don't want to say superposition, but this ability for the electron to, to perform both functions. Otherwise, how can a one electron system be a metal and still form bonding and still do all the things? And so, um, yeah, it's an exceptional question. When it comes to water, I think it's it's a little bit easier. Oxygen has much more electrons. It has its lone pairs. It can participate and provide electron density. The partial density of states, when you look at the electron band structure, if that means anything to anyone on this call, can be rather more convoluted. Um, yeah, things get difficult very, very, very quickly. So, so this seems like a like a problem that is is like natural to treat with uh, configuration interaction. And since you, you're dealing with you know one proton, one electron, uh, presumably that's the unit cell, or maybe there are two or three or even six. But this is something that can be done. Uh, explicitly with full uh, configuration interaction in a periodic system. So, I mean, this seems like a really interesting computation or quantum chemistry problem that's really tractable. Uh, sure. So my, my, my group is divided into experiment and theory. We have a very active theory component run by Dr. Keith Lawler. Okay, so the problem with with these high, okay, so if we're, if we're stuck in the world of density functional theory, the choice of functional is so critical in capturing these behaviors and dispersion effects in molecular species. And I don't wanna, I don't wanna rant, I could rant about this for this whole thing for another week, um, makes it very, very challenging. Within a, within a uh, molecular dynamics or some kind of Monte Carlo simulation, it's probably the way to solve these things. But the limitation there is, we cannot tell the theorists what the true crystal structure of metallic hydrogen or metallic water is. We cannot tell them, we cannot impose, we cannot provide them with enough quantifiable evidence for them not to just be looking into like, they're just for looking at into deep space. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm sure they're taking it very, very seriously, but whether we are taking their, their results seriously is a different issue because as experimentalists, we provide anchor points we rely so much on theory to help us explore this vast uh, phase space, but we provide them anchor points and they often go back and come back and revise their calculations to see if, if they come close to the anchor points we provided. And we have this aura sporus or this feedback loop mechanism for these very unique states of matter that we've talked about, there's very limited experimental evidence. And so it's very hard for the theorists to go away. You know, what, crazy assistant professor's gonna blow their tenure track uh, promotion on some damn silly question about water when no one can <laughs> <give> their answer. 
Uh, you that. need to find somebody with tenure already. But, yeah, yeah um, I know. that's a that's a spot on. Uh... But um, absolutely. Uh, one one comment. I I really doubt that density functional theory would be useful because the, you know they 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 all have um, um uh you know empirical parameters that are you know derived from totally irrelevant situations. Bad. That is or ordinary conditions, right? Absolutely, um, absolutely. But something like uh, uh, a free electron gas approximation. Yeah. Um, but so, so yeah, for sure. So like, let me give you another example. Like hydrogen, uh, it's very hard to. We haven't measured or yet computed the zero point contribution in hydrogen, which is prominent. And so even when you do, when you even look at hydrogen, you can't even account for the zero point motion. And so this is fudge. This is a fudge factor that theorists put in. So now we can do, you know. Uh, quantum Monte Carlo simulations that are then fed into the DFT and yada, yada, yada. But even the zero point contribution of uh, a tenfold density has never been measured and can only be guessed of what it is. And so insert again, goes, assumption here. There you go. Exactly. And so and, and then and then the theorists will fight for the next 10 years because one group thinks it's this and the one thing. But we we still have to just appreciate the complexity of nature and just just marvel in, in her in her amazingness and just what it really means is we just don't have enough information it doesn't mean other groups shouldn't be working on these problems all we can do is just keep bashing away at the block of knowledge and hope that one of us gets a big chunk out of it at some point uh, it's but, only a matter of time <laughs> so so well, yeah the theory approach i mean We'll get there eventually, um, and I'm excited to 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 be part of that gang if I'm able to do so. Well, it's humbling to think that in in that we you, you can't tell the theoreticians enough to even set up the false that calculator. Not even on hydrogen. I mean, theorists prefer very heaviest, well, not too heavy because then f electrons revolve, but they're like mid mid periodic table elements. You know, some classic stuff throwing a couple of fun vanilla PBE functionals. But the second you go to the very, very light elements or the very, very, very heavy elements, then it's very, very hard to, to capture the nature of that of that system. Just quickly. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, 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 go ahead. You go first. You go first. Sorry. You go first. Okay. Uh, just a quick question. The, uh, so you mentioned the shape of the... Uh, the crystal structure of the water 10. I forgot what you say, it's cubic, is it? It's cubic, it goes back to cubic remarkably, yeah. I see. And then you said, you, you mentioned the sh uh, shrinkage uh, is uh, about a factor of two, the volume? Yeah, two and a half, uh, the compressibility. The compressibility. The compre yeah, I, I didn't quite say, I said the bond stiffness. I, I, I gave a very generic uh, term there, but the, the really we're looking at the bulk compressibility, the bulk moduli. But yeah, the bond stiffens by about two and a half. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just trying to draw the, the, the structure and the, the, where the hydrogen and the, uh, oxygens are and trying to see in the cubic uh, type of uh, relative position then. Oh. Okay, so I'm, I'm trying to see, I mean, what if uh, you start with oxygen and start adding more uh, protons to it? I was just wondering. Great question. So I'm going to help you with your visualization of your model. So, Phase seven, 
even phase 7t which was supported this is a disordered phase of water there's a proton that sits between two oxygen atoms but this proton has a double well has a double energy well so it can exist in either one well or the other and so when you classically draw it out it looks like there's two protons or the protons exist in two different positions between these two adjacent oxygen atoms as you creep as you squeeze the material and you get to phase 10 this ionic phase these two wells get pushed and mushed into each other and it forms a single well and so by the time you get to phase 10 there is a single unique position for the proton to sit to reside in between the two adjacent or the two oxygen it sits in and so i don't know if that helped your analogy but again it's a very quantum i think about a reference kind of will, be, will be lovely yeah thank you it's very yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah cool uh, when um, when you mentioned the, the oh sorry go ahead yeah sorry can i just ask uh, doctor um that sounds fascinating i'm sorry i came in a bit late so i'm going to have to hear like the first major part of your talk on the replay um but when i came in i heard you mentioning about the electrons um, and uh, you know, using the the with the hydrogen atoms and stuff, and you said about them all holding hands and being like in a lattice work and everything. When you mentioned um, about them, like how how do you have it behave like a like a metal, but it's only got one electron, and they seem to have like or they could have like dual purpose, like a single electron like doing two things to make. Uh, to make hydrogen a metal as well. Now, please forgive me for being totally stupid, or you've totally covered this. Not but at all. is is that um, th that sounds like that kind of mind blowing? If, if an electron can have a dual purpose to make a kind of like two properties to like one thing or something, does is is that something that exists already? It's all or quantum, is, are, are baby. Are we literally talking about something that can blow the mind out of like chemistry and physics as we know it? If if we know that all the things that we we hold to have like one state or, or of being, it turns out they can you know, they come yeah. night shift to something else. I, I could give you it's a very it's a very good question. It's a very solid question. I'm going to give you an analogy. I play a lot of pool. My fellow Scotsman here probably plays a lot of snooker. Hopefully back in the day, but. Uh, yeah. when you play pool uh, you have a white ball you see the balls ahead of you you apply Newtonian mechanics and you pop ideally the ball of choice if I was going to play quantum pool then all the balls will already exist in all the pockets all at the same time and it's only when I choose to see a ball of choice does that pool then materialize and I could potentially pot it in the pocket of choice but on, a, on an atomistic level, the universe is statistical. And so when we talk about an electron has multiple purpose, it's because statistically it can exist, be doing one purpose or one function, it has one spatial coordinate, it has one distribution, one, one probability of existence. And, but because it's statistical, it's not 100%. It can also be doing something else or exist somewhere else or be somewhere else and so on. And so, um, and it's, it's mind blowing. You know, uh, I don't know if it's Feynman, I guess Feynman's uh, associated with it, but you know, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, then you truly don't understand it. It's this very weird, bizarre world. And so this, this dual purpose of the electron is not bizarre in the quantum realm. Many, many things do it. What makes it difficult to comprehend for someone like myself is 
this idea of a metallic hydrogen framework with nothing else participating in either the bonding or the or the or the conductivity or the other phenomena um and this poor electrons doing a lot of work i hope it's getting paid above minimum wage because it's, it's grinding it out on multiple fronts here um yeah so i hope that helped answer and, your question that don't get anything that was oh, they don't even get. I hope because they're not unionized. They need to get unionized <laughs> and lead from the front. Uh, well, is that is that a solid is that solid quantum uh, theory that they can have duels, or is this like just speculation at this point, or or is this like established that they can do that, or at least they seem to be able to have dual purposes like that? Because I'm finding that that's breaking my head open. That it's like everything we know about everything is not what we know, not really correct yes i, I mean it's, it's pretty well uh it, these are measurable effects the the statistical nature of quantum mechanics is a highly measurable phenomenon in the laboratory i'm going to go i'm going to go off the book i've been watching a lot of star trek discovery uh and so yeah. i've been really thoroughly enjoying Hell yeah. I mean, Hell yeah. Really, Hell yeah. Oh, damn right damn right i've been thoroughly enjoying uh mainstream tv shows I'm a Star Trek phenomenon, but I'm re-watching really, really Deep Space out. Nine right now. Damn <laughs> right. I finished Voyager like two months ago. But uh in Discovery they they play a little bit about multiverse theory and, and all this stuff and, and actually it's it's very it becomes the thing is it's outside of the discussion. It becomes metaphysical, it becomes into the realm of philosophy. We're 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 beyond the measurable now. You know, it's not something I like to often talk about because I'm a geeky experimental physicist anyway yeah thank you very strange much, new worlds strange new worlds right here oh, deep fake yeah. myself over the captain so hell yeah so what's what's <laughs> particularly strange and occurs to me and and this can be both in the case of uh um not metallic hydrogen but metallic uh deuterium uh, and also um, the case for water, I guess, at super high temperatures. Uh, um, the, the, the notion here is that um, the electrons being fermions, you know, obey Fermi mm -hmm. statistics. But um, when you have nuclei that are bosons, right, and mm -hmm. can, can, number one, occupy the same energy state degenerately, right? Um, yeah. The cal it, this is like a fascinating question for for how you would calculate that um, uh, in terms of what happens with regard to exchange, right? Because now you have what you would ordinarily think of as the nuclei forming the lattice, right? But they are uh, identical, uh, so their interchange would be handled differently uh, under exchange kind of the way electrons have to be, uh, um, um, tr you know, tre you, you have to, you know, include that term in, in the wave function, right? You, I, do, do you see where what I'm is going? Your, what, uh, absolutely. Where is, what is your background? Are you a professor of physics? Uh, well, <laughs> I actually don't even have a doctorate. Um, I, oh, I, where, where um, are you busting out these questions from? I have, have been doing uh, um, quantum chemistry uh, for the purpose of, of um, calculations on uh, um, positional uh, mechanosynthesis and nanofabrication. Oh, cool. Uh, oh, Drexlerian sort of stuff. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Um, all right, a super deep question. So, 
let me try and let me try and sum it down for everyone. So just for the general audience, uh, the spin integral, you know, fermions have a half, bosons have one, and it's it's basically it allows us to divide the whole of all matter into two subgroups, um, and they have very different properties. Uh, the right Fermi statistics describes things like electrons, and those uh, Einstein statistics describes the boson stuff. So it's a phenomenal question i'm not going to answer it because i don't really have a good enough answer for it um i've been yapping for about an hour and a half i think i've run out of juice but it's that's the kind of questions we're interested in as a group because even in nucleation processes there is a difference between how deuterated water and hydrogenated water behave even in the macroscopic behavior of water there is some underlying quantum phenomena that drives macro behavior and it's just remarkable often because of the de Broglie wavelength and stuff quantum phenomena is often sort of very small atomistic once you get into the macroscopic realm the quantumness of materials diminishes it, it, it dies but in things like water growing of crystals are very it's a very clear macroscopic uh, phenomena that you can observe and when you deuterate water it grows quite differently to how the underdeuterated version works and so it's a it's a great question it's, it's something we've been really deeply thinking about it's it's a deep deep physics question um yeah i'm gonna leave it at that uh, understanding understanding this conversation is is slated to go to a geological time scale <laughs> but given given that you are a human, how much longer do we have the honor of your presence? I have one more question. I think uh, it's a cool question. So I, I, I don't know. Are you guys still pumped? I yes, I, you know, I am I super pumped. Geological timescales, man. We're ready to go. Yeah. Okay. I, I just want to say, if my sisters, if my sisters listening to this downstairs, I'd love someone to bring me up another whiskey. Uh, <laughs> but keep going. Keep going. On the so, way. On the way. Okay. So, I have a question. So, so Lee Lee Cronin. Um, uh, did this kind of, um, I guess, popular science video for one of those uh, channels, and he talked about how potentially there could be organisms or metabolisms at some of these higher pressures and temperatures where the organisms might use magnetic yeah, yeah. fields because they would have some sort of perhaps exotic interaction at those temperatures that may give rise to something analogous to what we call life. Uh, could you or 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 do you speculate about that? Sure. Lee Cronin, is he the chap at Glasgow? By yes. Chance? Oh, yeah, I know him. Um, uh, watch him uh, speculating about life on Earth. Okay, so in, in my field of high-pressure uh, physics or high-pressure sciences, there is the high-pressure bio-community, and they've done some phenomenal work in trying to appreciate uh, the effects of pressure on life. It originates from actually the food industry, where similar to pasteurizing, one of the one of the main methods for uh, cleaning food is they put them in these very large rooms with, with the ability to go to pretty high pressures of several thousand bar, I would say, to to kill bacteria and, and other unwanted uh, things. Uh, the deep the deep life component of, of extreme science uh, has been looking at the Mariana Trench and understanding the evolution of life here on the Earth. Um, and it's often speculated, at least within that community, that th the presence of life on this planet could have come from a dynamic high pressure interaction. And what I mean by dynamic is 
unlike my experiments, which are static and geologically slow and can be contained, a meteorite hitting the earth, for example, can drive the pressure temperature scale quite uniquely. In fact, very unique for that, for that interaction. And although the pressure and temperature can be very, very extreme from a, from a meteorite collision, on the tail end, when, it's, when, when it dissipates, there can be unique PT environments that could have given rise to complex life. So clay pools with RNA and so on, which can then get driven to pseudo DNA. I'm not a biologist, right? I'm just speculating. I'm just, these are like pop science books I've read. Um, yeah, I've actually pinned the video to the top, so perhaps for a future discussion oh, or even yeah, just for yeah. your entertainment purposes and everyone else, please do check out the video. Uh, my mother saw it, and one day she heard me talking to the opponent because he comes on the app regular or w was coming on here regularly until a while ago, and uh, he was talking about these topics. And so, just by sheer coincidence of his unique voice, oh, yeah, yeah. I got to learn about this video, which my mom found, <laughs> and uh, it was quite interesting, at, at least in terms of the visuals. And so when I asked him, he kind of, uh, you know, said, oh, yeah, that's just something that I did. And uh, so I was curious because your work is, is a lot more yeah. in that direction. But, of course, so, the biology might be significantly yeah. different. Just, just to say, so the way Lee Cronin knows any of this is that my, my PhD supervisor, Paul McMillan, who unfortunately just passed away last month, he was a professor at University College London. Uh, towards the end of his career, he specialized in this problem of, of of extremophiles, they call them, uh, and understanding the, the origins of life through pressure temperature uh, perturbations. So, um, if you, if just Paul F. McMillan, if anyone can come across his papers, he's done some amazing work on this. I'm not an expert, but it, but it seems that extremophiles, so biological systems that can exist in very extreme conditions, whether it be like uh, you know the hot springs in, in Yellowstone versus the Mariana Trench could be providing us glimpses of information which would allow us to, to understand the origins of life which could most likely come from some weird meteorite impact so so two two things that that differ in these kinds of the kinds of uh um uh, conditions that uh you know we've been talking about uh that compared to you know even what uh the conditions that these extremophiles exist in are um, the uh, uh, lack of, of at least the same uh, weak bonding interactions, like you know the hydrogen bonds that hold DNA together, um, you know th those would not obtain at all at these conditions, um, um, unless maybe mm -hmm. you know uh, the the, the Bose uh, statistics can come into play uh, with with something analogous but totally different. Um, but then also. Uh, um, it's it's unclear to me that there is even stable valency. Would you would you say that there is stable valency at the most extreme conditions? Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So okay. So um, I talk about this a lot with my students. So classical chemistry, valency, coordination number, oxidation states, uh, these mean nothing <laughs> under extreme conditions. The That's periodic what I table, thought. yeah, yeah, it's 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 very annoying, but also very exciting. The periodic table itself takes sh a different shape at various densities relative to the elements of interest. Um, it's 
it's it's a very bizarre world as you compress materials um you know let me give you some beautiful examples sodium which we all know it to be an alkali metal it's highly reactive when you compress it above two million atmosphere it becomes a, a transparent insulator it goes non-metallic you can squeeze metals into non-metallic states in fact sodium does a very unique thing it forms something called an electride its electron density separates away from the nucleus and forms groups of electrons stuck in interstitial sites inside the sodium framework so with pressure you can drive metals to non-metallic states you can drive non-metals to metallic states coordination valency oxygen all this just goes out the window um yeah it's wow. absolutely it's absolutely <laughs> remarkable it's I, mind -blowing. i'm not going to be able to put wild. salt on my fish and chips again think 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 of salt yeah there you go yes <laughs> so it, it's just it's just staggering it's just staggering um for me it's actually staggering how naive as humans we think this whole this whole construct is built around us and really we're just glimpsing into just a set of conditions at a certain time and trying to make the best we can of it it could be very very different for other systems or life or whatever on very extreme environments relative to us you simple humans oh. <laughs> ash did this is z did you just use the word interstitial when you were talking about these yes clumping? yes i did yes okay would you, would you like me to expand on that yes please absolutely and so when you have a periodic arrangement of atoms you know uh, nature is very very complex but but actually the way she makes materials or, or compounds is is predictable if we can see the entirety of the pattern bam, we just haven't bam, gotten bam, there exactly, yet exactly we, we we use a series of mathematical constructs to 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 summarize nature we use something we use something called space groups. These are symmetry operators. We have 230 unique space groups that describe all of three-dimensional nature. Now, it's probably not true, but we have summarized often as humans since we rely on pattern recognition to allow us to take a very, very complicated environment and minimize it into these palatable shapes that we as, as, as mere humans understand. So within these constructs, um, an interstitial site is often when you have two, when you have atoms periodically arranged, you can stuff things between two atoms. <laughs> and so that's when we often mean interstitial sites where you could stuff this thing between these two, two, uh, I don't want to get too technical because then we have to talk about other stuff. But yeah, it's the stuffing of things between other things in a periodic arrangement. That's probably the worst description ever, but and and so so when when you think about this at, at the really high temperatures where uh uh you know the thermal energy um uh you know expressed as electron volts might be uh um higher than the de broglie wavelength uh, of the atom you know less its valence electron um uh you know i again i really wonder about um whether you'd have anything analogous to uh fermi smearing of the atoms from one lattice site to another so that they could exchange yeah another great question and so um okay so I'm, again i'm going to bring it back to hydrogen this is a general audience and i don't want to uh complicate things so hydrogen is a great great thing 
one way you can think about, you know, I talked about what's that electron doing? Is it sharing with its neighbor? Is it in the conduction or participating in conductivity and stuff? Um, one other way to think about it is the wave function that describes a, a proton, a hydrogen atom is a, you know, the wave function squared tells you the, 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 the probability distribution and, and the whole information about this proton, this, 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 this particle is contained within the wave function. When I squeeze hydrogen, what you can imagine is you have these series of atoms or molecules, starts off with molecules, but maybe it dissociates into atoms and each one has a wave function. And as you squeeze them closer and closer, the tail ends of the wave function start to smear out and start to overlap. And, and a pictorial explanation for yourself could be that the smearing of these electrons, of these wave functions as they overlap is what actually leads to this final metallic state where now you have a continuous spreading of these wave functions um, in that sense. Um, I don't know if that was a good answer, but yeah, these we think a lot about all this stuff. Um, I yeah. mean, I, I, I just like, I, I, I so want to tie this back to uh, um, like like the the um, delocalization of the electrons in benzene, but rather for for the nuclei and lattice sites. Yeah. So so actually, I could that, that's a, again a great way to think about. It. So the amazing one, if you want to take that example to the absolute extreme, is this electrode that I mentioned, this sodium electrode. Sodium becomes transparent, and um, what happens is the, is the electrons actually rip themselves away from the nucleus and they they sit in these balls oh, sorry someone's bringing me a drink and being very rude about it um so these electrons separate themselves from the nucleus and they and they punch up in these blobs and sit in these interstitial sites so you actually get complete separation of electrons away from nuclei which is which is mind-blowing because the effective nuclear charge often is what pulls the electrons and keeps them in in their orbitals and yet through density, density perturbation the electrons are like forget this i can completely lower the free energy of the system by actually completely separating from the nucleus and going to sit in some random site you know far away and so so there's all this weird and wonderful phenomena you know um yeah I, I, I'm my head is swirling about this material, the the ice tin, and the properties that it might have. Is there, you know, humor me? Is there any practical system that we, you know, we could we could actually make a sample and trap it, and and you know, wire it up and study it, in in a in a sense that, or is that that, that thirty thousand atmospheres just you know, beside all warnings of you know con contents under pressure and, and you know that sort of thing, is there a way to to trap that? You're being generous. It was three hundred thousand uh, atmosphere of pressure. I wish it was thirty in the sense. So it is trapped. <laughs> it is trapped inside of a diamond anvil cell. Right. Um. So. Uh, it's not like you can touch it. It's still confined in this environment. Um, for more modest pressures of maybe tens of thousands of atmosphere, there are now lots of tricks within chemistry that allows you to print materials on frustrated lattices 
a very complex process. We can talk about this endlessly, but you can print materials on frustrated lattices where they feel a pressure equivalent of up to 50,000 atmosphere. So that's still far away from ice 10, but there are techniques which we can manipulate nature to allow us to get the equivalence of pressure in there. Um, in terms of water and phase 10, it's it probably has no real functionality for, for life or humans. Um, it's, it's a very fundamental thing and it's completely necessary for us for understanding planets, our environment, exoplanets and, and ice giants and so on. Um, I don't know, maybe it makes an amazing drink, but I'm not, I, I don't know. Maybe aliens drink it in there. Maybe maybe aliens have ice ten ice cubes or something. I have no idea. Band <laughs> galactic gargles blaster. One of them. Yeah. If that's not a drink already, you just uh, gave away some IP. Yes, I know. <laughs> well, well, really quickly, we've been making uh, one of the things we can do is we can make CO two into a glass. So you can compress CO two gas and make it into a glass. Actually, we mix it with SiO2, which is the main constitution for normal glass. So you can make SiO2-CO2 glass. And one of the big things we were thinking about was self-carbonating bottles, where you can pour water into your bottle and the CO2 <laughs> from the glass would, would then diffuse into the water. It. There we go. That's incredible. Wow, self-regenerating awesome. bubbles. May I ask, uh, I guess we kind of touched upon it here briefly for a moment, but uh, I guess one of the things that labs have to do is sometimes generate revenue for universities through research, through grants. Yeah. Uh, can yeah. you comment a little bit on your perception or how you feel about IP or intellectual property and how that helps or doesn't yeah. help science? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I can tell you a bit about my journey. Uh, I actually have a startup with my co-founder, Ranga Diaz. It's called Unearthly Materials. We specialize in quantum materials. We, we raise a lot of capital through VC firms, which we then pump into our research group. And the reason for that is, I don't want to burst everyone's bubble here, but you know, I worked really damn hard to be a professor. And once I got here, I was a bit disappointed because it's not like I could go away and work on any problem I want to work on. There are funding agencies and bodies where they define their mission goals for the next three to five years. Actually, all this work on water, it's not funded by anyone. I've had to fund it through other means. No one's been willing to give us money for this work on water. It doesn't resonate with NASA. NASA has been thinking about the James Webb and has all this other thing. And so you get to this, to this, to this academic point in your career and you're like, bam, I can work on anything. And the realization kicks in that funding agencies actually have very rigid frameworks and they have, they have their own perceived ideas of what's important for the funding agency. And so it makes blue sky research like this incredibly challenging. We've been lucky. We've gone off and done other things that has generated uh, funding for my group and for my center. And, and we've developed IP that's allowed us to get money from VC firms, then pump back into fundamental science. And so maybe the noble thing from the English lords and gentlemen of the 18th century would tell you that fundamental science was pure and so on. But in reality, uh, not if know, it's not funded purely. Yeah. <laughs> so no, great societal change often doesn't come from academia anymore. And so 
the world is changing. Academia is changing. You know, uh, our incentives for driving to IP and generating uh, external revenue is to drive our fundamental science programming within our academic institutes. Um, so, yeah, I think naive me would have said, oh man, that's not what scientists do and we should, we should just do science, man, and like, just get money, bro. In reality, running a 20-person group like I do, I need, you know, millions of dollars every year running for my group. I've got to pay salaries. I've got to break laces. We break, we break a pair of diamonds every time we do an experiment. Could, no. could you tell us what it takes to run one of your efforts on an annual basis? Yeah, you've got a bench like 275. Uh, no, that was, that was a joke. <laughs> uh, I, I have, I mean, let's be honest, I have seven active grants, you know, uh, and I work in a state school. Uh, we're an EP school state. I have worked incredibly hard, have an amazing group of people around me, and, you know, I've dedicated my life for this. And that's what it takes. Now, if you don't have access to that kind of funding, you cannot do some of the, the things we've done. So, as I said, this whole water project is, is funded by ourselves. We, I, have, I have begged, borrowed and stolen, well, it's not stolen, but to get capital to, to do this problem because Zach and I are passionate about understanding how these damn planets work. But our real money in my group comes from superconductivity research, from high energy density materials, from um, things building. that commerce are interested in. Exactly. That's what's so upset, spot on. People, if you can make a device, people will throw money at you. But if you care about how the interior of some planet works or whether there's ancient reservoirs of water in the Earth, no one's going to give you a buck. I'm surprised NASA's not interested but, but, in working with you. That's that's yeah, my my proposal has been rejected. I mean, I'm not going to call NASA out, but, but whoever we submitted to, we our reject our proposal has been rejected four times. It's it's too. Um, well, so so listen, um, uh, Dr. Jim Green, chief um, uh, uh, scientist emeritus now, as of the beginning of this year of NASA, um, frequently comes on the app, and I think he would be great. fascinated by uh, some he of the things you're rooms, talking, yeah. Yeah. talking about that. And of course, it won't it won't get you funding right away, but um, he has remarked how uh, many propo good proposals have been rejected three, four times. But mm -hmm. then they get funded. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing that I also complained to him about personally, and he was like, "Well, if it didn't come to my desk," and I was like, "Yeah, well, you know, I guess there's a lot of people. It's a lot, it's a, it's a huge machine. There's a lot but of this desks. is something that scientists yeah. feel." I, I, yeah, I, I, I get all this. I, I get all this, and like four or five times. Okay, so you know, um, what is this? An what, insurance uh, company with uh, you're trying to make a claim against yeah, yeah, your exactly. policy? I, I, think, I think the reality is. Look, as, as, as junior academics, I, I go to a modest state school. I've done pretty well, but if you're at a higher school, your tenure track process is incredibly competitive. You cannot wait four or five times to get a $400,000 federal grant where 50% goes to overhead, if not more, where you could probably pay for two grad students, max a couple of diamonds and break a laser. It just, it just if, if, if there's a need in this country, for fundamental science and like this, it cannot be a four or five time review process. There are other avenues of money which I've explored and they're easier to access. And we have a we have a program to run. I have to train students. My job is to pay people 
get them trained, get them out there, get them working for whoever they want to work for. It's cute that the guy was like, no problem, just, just submit four or five times and I'll get through. Cool. If I was like 70 and, you know, it, it just, the world has changed. Academia has changed. It, it is. That is. Yeah, average, it's, it's like the average age of PIs like is going up. Right. Like so I, I disagree. I think um, it's all with the. I've been. Going, I, I went way. through similar um, yeah, that's a whole other problems. Discussion. And I just, you know, I also started my own little company to generate some funding for projects that I did. But I honestly gave up on academia. Like, I work for a, a company and I still have my affiliation, but I work for a company and I have my own company at the same time because I'm, I just don't, it's just a waste of time. Like all you do is deal either with bureaucracy or with grant writing for nothing. And then you went through all this training, right? Like uh, Europe spent so much money on me to, to send me abroad and whatnot. So that I can sit at the desk and write grants and take care of bureaucracy, of stupid bureaucracy on top of it. Like, <laughs> this is such a waste yeah. of time. Our university oh. actually has somebody who's dedicated to writing grants only, and they come and help every professor polish up their grants. They just look if you have all the paperwork in place. I don't want to poop. I don't want to poop too hard on academia. There's, there's obviously some major problems within modern Western academia and everything you said, I've become a manager and a grant writer and, you know, I am disconnected from the front line. I, I, You're I underpaid. A, You're underpaid. Absolutely. I need, you know, I was once a phenomenal experimentalist, if not the, one of, one of the top in my generation. And now I'm just some dude who sits in his office and like reads the Guardian newspaper for like eight hours a day. But so I get all that, but there, there is a good, there is a silver lining and that's, you know, there's not many bodies still out there. There's no Bell Labs anymore. There's, there's no real national lab program in the US. It's, 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 it's mission goal driven for weapons program. I was just so going to say there's still this, DARPA and ARPA. And yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. But like, but that's it. This, this understanding how the interior of an ice giant works. There's not many environments we could have done this. Now, should we be better funded? Yes. Should access be money better? Yes. Does the, does the federal government waste loads of taxpayers' money on stuff that shouldn't be wasted? All this, absolutely. Um, should NASA be investing in more fundamental research? Absolutely. Um, you know, academia has, academia has loads of problems and it's made me really think about alternatives but there's still something very liberating about being an academic and spending four years smashing your head against this problem you know <laughs> it's a very yeah. real it's a very real reality and it's one that kept me away from academia my career and um and i did with 18 years at ibm research i watched it go closer and closer to the bone and and to the point where industrial research became more business development and you know lo and behold here i am in the defense industry so it, you know it's a very real issue we we had a speaker um you know raise the, the point uh recently about um all this you know 
uh, cryptocurrency wealth that's accumulated and you know are any of these billionaires doing anything interesting with it and uh, she seemed to have you know at least a perspective and some optimism about uh, nfts for fundamental research as a a new funding vehicle um but, in, but yeah yeah I, I love how I, I just want to offer I, that if anybody out there is listening to this conversation, they're just thinking of dropping out of academia before, you know, after listening to it, um, <laughs> you're free to, sure, you're free to contact me because, uh, uh, you know, I would be happy to discuss in depth what the whole process is like and the pros and cons. I mean, one pro is that you're interacting constantly with students, right? And that, um, yes. that gives you that beginner mindset income, you know, as you get more and more, sort of canalized in the thinking of your discipline you stay fresh and current because you're forced through interacting with them to see things through you know fresh perspectives and and you're also it also forces you to kind of really stay current outside your own little bubble and really you get opportunities to give talks all over the world and to interact with other people who are focused on the same kind of problem that you're pro focused on all over the world i mean there's a lot of really great things about it as well yeah, that was a great that was a, that was so that was a great statement. I mean, I'm hoping anyone that heard the whole talk would be like, "I want to be a scientist and not I'm dropping out of academia." I was hoping that was the general end. But there, there was so much nerd enthusiasm throughout the talk that I guarantee that that is what ninety five percent of people. But but academia has problems. Like, we're adults here. We're not hiding uh, anything. I'm doing uh, basic research in companies and uh, I'm sorry, but everything that we got funded at academia was boring bullshit uh, research, like just tiny incremental. Uh, yeah, but I, I would disagree. And uh, so, I want so, to uh, about fundamental stuff was not funded. So I, 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 in part, I agree to that statement, but um... Look, the problem is this, and I'm torn because I've got the startup world and my startup hat and blah, but if we all dropped out of academia, who the hell is going to train these these these, these young folks to come and work in our startups? The startup well, culture I'm training does, does... them at the start. I'm training them. Yeah, I don't know. Like, as you said, as, as the previous person who was speaking, that the perks of academia are you have young blood coming through every year. No startup has this culture, and actually, one of the great things about, especially at UNLV, we we have some of the we have some of the most, you know, socio-economical diversity, ethnic diversity. It's a tapestry, a mosaic of people. Some of my group members that are actual superstars, they would have never made it beyond UNLV at first. They will become world leaders, but. This the startup culture, from what I've experienced shortly, is very aggressive, and and there's something about a good state school in a state where people who've had underprivileged lives get access to professors like myself, and they realize in their early twenties that actually they've got the capacity to grow into a remarkable adult to contribute to the knowledge of, of society, and so, um, academia has its problems. It's shit. That's not. I'm gonna. I've already had two drinks. So. But there must be a place, there must be an environment where we can culture things. And the danger of startups is it's driven by capitalism, it's driven by money, where academia, you so can spend cool. for I'm sorry, yeah. so it's cool. And so it's education, and I'm sorry, academia is way more cool. 
unfriendly for women and people of other races, then that's and that's what in a lot of. I, I, I agree. Like I'm a brown man. Like I, I yeah. come from a refugee. You know, I, I appreciate all this. I, I agree with you all, all of this. And so, I would like to change it and improve it. If I burn this bridge, I could. I will improve. I will help to be part of the changing, uh, change the grain. So, I agree. It's very tough in physics. It's very tough for women. It's 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 a the the, the gender bias is 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 uncomfortably staggered towards white men. You know. I I get all this, and so I'll see myself the, out. I, I saw the door on the way in. <laughs> so so, I I promised to cook for my whole family who's sitting downstairs, eagerly waiting for this conversation to finish. So of course, last two questions, yeah. and I'm going to get. Uh, and next time we should have just a conversation about the the failures of capitalism. I will I will call in and and give him my my four hour rant. No, thank oh, you. Yeah, that would be sorry. awesome. I was so... <laughs> I'm sorry, it was so controversial about the the. the oh, I love it! I love fight. it! I, I, I wish <laughs> that's a Friday night session. Forget, forget about, forget about, about, yeah, forget about science. I would, we should have talked about this. <laughs> I think commiserating. Who cares about quantum like mechanics? <laughs> oh, and and we could dish on industry endlessly. Yeah. no oh, doubt. Hold my beer. Hold my beer, please. Well, at least from my perspective, I found that like for for really cool projects that are. Very very unlikely to be funded by government. I found private investors are willing to give you like 100k, 200k, much more easily than the government, and then that allows you to do that proof of concept, that critical data set, and then the government's willing to listen. And I heard this years ago, like a decade ago, from Craig Venter. But, but also, Venter, I want to say that universities help professors find those private donors. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So to, to be fair, it wasn't a university uh, funded incubator program. Uh, so so but but that's still something that but is I just, I just want to say something. I just want to say something. We pay ta we pay tax dollars. I would like my tax dollars to contribute to the wealth of knowledge. It shouldn't be rich people who are entitled who have side hobbies in sciences paying for this stuff. We as the population we pay a lot of tax in this country. You don't get much buck for your tax. It's not like Europe where you get healthcare and everything else. I would like my damn tax dollars to be paid towards sciences. I don't yeah, want yeah. the, the yeah, I don't yeah. want the charity of a rich man or woman. It's mostly white men to pay for my work. I will charity tax. is no substitute for properly taxed wealth, and Bam. we need to rebalance. Bam. The Ecosystem well, well, all right, of... comrades. All right, comrades. <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> funny. I, I, I wish you could see my Lenin poster in my bedroom. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. But seriously, why, why do we have to rely on the charity of an individual to, to fund fundamental science? Yeah. We pay our taxes. We should damn well invest in this stuff, and it's good for everyone. Yeah, it's just unfortunate no. it has changed from what it was historically to this is what it seems to be like right now. And you said that academia was changing, and this is kind of how I see it changing. So, well, I worry about um, your domestic obligations yeah. compromising your ability to return. <laughs> I, I think we really do have to do a part two of this. Oh, yeah. I would love, I, and yeah. I, I would drink much harder liquor for part two. Okay, great. <laughs> we should make it a. Uh, we should make it an event. Yeah, so, this is phenomenal, folks. Yeah, thank you so much, Ash, and uh, let's chat again. And um, yeah, this was an amazing room. Really, 
um, outstanding and uh, apologize for being harsh, but when I get like uh, annoyed about something. No, know. no, I'm pumped. I'm, I'm still pumped. Portuguese. I'm pumped. I'm pumped. I, 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 I love all this rhetoric. I think, but next time we should do a game where we all drink a bottle of whiskey. Yes. And then we come and then we come to the chat. That's how we'll solve all the world's problems. That's right. Last human standing. That's a that's a good game to play. Before before you uh, depart, uh, it's uh, fascinating. The, there's in chat. There's a quick uh, question on the uh, you're uh, asking for your thoughts or comments of uh, the uh, tungsten and uh, molybdenum, like uh, as uh, ma um, the metals as uh, cofactors. Uh, any thoughts? Any comments or? Uh, a fascinating question. Sorry, just to bring it back to the science. What was the exact question? I didn't call tungsten, tungsten based, nitrogen based, so more than iron based. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, asked by so uh, I, I, Dr. I Lee about eating. Speculation about metals and maybe for the extreme thermal the part, yeah. Oh, so sorry. I, um, this is the idea that uh, noble metals in extremophiles. When he says extreme thermophiles, does he mean extremophiles? I don't quite understand the exact question. I think uh, hyperthermophiles. Hyperthermophiles? I don't even know what that well, is. Well, that's that's a thermophile that's probably at above the uh, boiling temperature of normal boiling temperature of water at, and uh, a pump, extreme yeah, pressure. Yeah, uh, thermophile. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm thinking about socialism. <laughs> so going back, uh, this idea of a noble metal doping within a uh, water framework is that what we're asking here i, I, I need well, well can thing. we ask yeah. it or should that be a part two exactly yeah, exactly I, I good place to you, i'm gonna so, tell you right yeah. now if you invite me back for part two i'll beatbox the whole hour and a half hell yeah uh, i'll do it in song format there you go and so <laughs> thank you okay make sure everybody <laughs> to give ash a follow and uh, please follow the club at the top with by pressing the greenhouse button and uh, thank you to ash for joining us and everyone else for the thank wonderful so question yeah, thank, thank you very yeah, much thank you. so much yeah. thank fun. so much thanks Karen. ash come back Appreciate anytime food. ciao everyone bye bye, bye. bye. Take care. Good night. Um, yeah, thanks everyone. This was such a great discussion for asking all these um, great questions and um, follow the club, as I always say. And uh, we'll have tomorrow Dr. Liang. Um, it's actually from a company and she will discuss about carbon negative production of acetone and isopropanol. And um, then we'll have on. Um, <clears throat> Oh, no, I'm sorry, that that is on Wednesday. Tomorrow we have uh, Dr. Lenz, Human Evolutionary Distinctiveness. You know, you heard probably that we now know the whole genome. So it's a study about more evolutionary um, biology in the terms on how we as a human distinguish. Um, it's not too many genes, but um, there are few, and it's an interesting evolutionary um, room. And then Thursday, we have a room about ADHD and hoarding-related neuroscience. And on Friday, we'll have, um, we will have probably more kind of a roundtable discussion room or um, another hallucinogen room. We are still um, 
coordinating the dates, but I prefer actually on Friday night to have um, more kind of a round table. We can, if you have suggestions for something you want to discuss, please go ahead, suggest. Um, and then other than that, uh, we'll have, you know, like we had last Friday, it was pretty good. Went for like five or six hours the room, so it was pretty good. And then on Saturday, we have at 1 p.m. EST, Dr. Marco Pettini from Italy um, talking about his um, physics research, <coughs> quantum mechanic, a long distance electrodynamic intermolecular forces. And that is the paper that was up on last Saturday. <laughs> yeah, make sure you make sure you don't pick, uh, pick the other person's one up to swap it around. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I thank think you unfortunately that that overlaps with um Paul's room on time. The Saturday room. Yeah, there's nothing I can do about it. It's it's more up to the guest speaker when they want to come and speak. So um. Yeah, we'll have a recording and everyone can listen to it that can't make it to the room. So uh, it's really more up to the speakers. I'll give them like some guidance on when we usually, if I try to get them to the 9 p.m. schedule, but if they are from Europe, it's pretty, um, you know, not possible. And if they don't have time during the week, I'll try to get them on the weekend. So, um, yep. So, yeah, he seems to be really, like, Marco Puccini is a really nice and really amazing scientist. Um, but if you want, you can just listen to the recording. It's really up to everyone here. And uh, on Sunday, we have our weekly recaps. If you, like, miss rooms, we'll have, like, a, about an hour uh, weekly recap room to summarize. And if you have questions or so, we try to answer them just like a short summary of the week um so thank you everyone have a good evening and um thanks for this great evening <laughs> bye thanks everyone thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you Karina. Bye. thanks bye. everyone bye. good night